0: It's good to see you all again. It's good to be back. Um, We had a really, really wonderful time in Sydney and we um, took our family on the Great Ocean Road and did the whole Ballarat Sovereign Hill thing. Um, They were very sad to discover that they couldn't find any gold in the little river. And when Roy said that he found it, they got really excited and came over and they were like, where? And Roy was like, here. And it was like this tiny, tiny speck of dust Um, and they were like, no way. (laughs) But we enjoyed it very much and uh, it's good to be back. Um, great, got my slides back. Um, in 1963, a man decided to do some house renovations, and for those of you who have been to Galen and Janelle's lovely home, have seen the blue stone wall that um, Galen and Janelle put up with a lot of effort. Um, and so you can imagine, with house renovations, you know, walls come down, walls go up. And this man in 1963, living in Cappadocia, Turkey, decided that he was going to knock down a wall. And so he expected to find behind that wall some rock uh, because he lived kind of in this um, rocky terrain with these with cavernous kind of um, uh, mountains. And so he expected fully to knock on the wall and maybe, you know, dig some uh, hole, excavate a little bit and extend his place, perhaps. But to his amazement, when he knocked down that wall, he found a room. And when he walked into that room... He found that it led to another room, and another room, and another room. And what happened was that this man inadvertently discovered a whole underground city called Derinkuyu, extending to a depth of 85 meters. And archaeologists have excavated 13 stories, but they think that there might be as many as 18 levels to the city. And I have, hopefully up on the screen for you in a moment, a picture of this city. Um, as you can see, uh, the yellow part is actually the, the city of Derinkuyu, and it's actually connected to other underground cities, um, nearby. And they had no idea that it was there, and when the archaeologists, um, you know, went through and discovered this place, it was amazing because it can house up to 30,000 people. There are ventilation shafts so deep that they actually haven't discovered the bottom of it yet. Um, this place is so well archaeologically and, like, structurally engineered that despite the fact that it seems to be at least, you know, four or five thousand years old, there is no evidence of any cave-ins or any kind of deterioration to the structure of the place. I'll show you a picture of one of the, um, uh, rooms there. There are not only rooms, there are stables, there's an underground river, and they also found chapels. Um, inside and you know scholars have studied this area for some time and they believe that various people groups have occupied this underground city over the thousands of years for various reasons and one of those people groups um, they have identified were the Christians the early Christians living um, in the first 300 years Um, and they believe that they were hiding here and the question is, why? And as we saw in the video, sorry, it was a little bit uh, graphic. Um, but as you saw in the video, Christians hid here during the times when there was systematic um, destruction and persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. And I guess the next question you have to ask is, well, why? Why were they being so persecuted? Why were they being um, eliminated? What was the threat to Rome? And there are several causes for that persecution. Um, one was definitely political religion could actually be very well tolerated in the Roman Empire. They were very generous with different religions as long as your gods came under the authority of the Roman state gods and goddesses, of course. And so Christianity was um, unique from other religions of that time in that it was, um, as Judaism was, exclusive um, to one god. And so because of that, Christianity was seen as a threat to the political uh, status of the Roman Empire. Because oftentimes when the choice came between Caesar and Christ, the citizens would actually choose Christ. And the Roman emperor did not like that very much. In addition to the political cause uh, for the persecution, there was also the religious um, side of things. You had the Roman state religion of gods and goddesses. um, And not only did Christianity threaten the plurality of the state of things where kind of anything went um, for everyone, The principles and the values of Christianity clashed very much with the religious ethics of Rome. Um, In fact, it's kind of ironic. The Romans accused Christians of being atheists because Christians didn't have a God that was visible. And so Christians would close their eyes when they prayed. Um, and so they believed that it was because, well, you know, Christians did that because to them, God is invisible to them. But the Romans looked at that and, saw, and thought, you believe in no gods. You don't worship any gods. There are no idols in your home. You're atheists. Um, there was also a lot of misunderstanding about the whole... Um, speech that the Christians used, for example, talking about taking on the blood and the flesh of Christ. Um, people thought that Christians were cannibalistic because they didn't understand that it was actually a symbolic um you know language about taking on and accepting the gift of Jesus's death um as a substitution for our sins and so instead they thought what they're eating the flesh of you know they they have these you know these um suppers where they come together and eat the flesh and blood of Christ and yeah so there was a lot of misunderstanding and um religious opposition to Christianity but there was also an economic cause to the persecution. You see, um, the economy of the Roman gods and goddesses was actually huge. Uh, for example, when Paul went to Ephesus and he was spreading the story of Jesus Christ, the tribesmen who were crafting the idols for Diana and worked for the temple of Diana were angry with him because if people became Christians, then they would lose their means of living. Um, And oftentimes, um, gifts and um, temple gifts, as well as kind of um, temple idols, etc., all contributed to the economy of Rome. And so that uh, was a huge uh, factor in the persecution of the Christians. And finally, the social impact that Christians had in Rome was something that made the Roman um, emperor and the privileged noble class very uncomfortable because Christians um, claimed things like Paul did, that in Christ there is neither male nor female, uh, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And so because Christianity um, promoted this um, egalitarian worldview, that was very contrary to the Roman view of the privileged few having at that time um, two-thirds, well, one-third to two-thirds, depending on some different scholars, of, of the Roman citizenship being actually slaves, um, that would totally, Christianity would kind of subtly um, threaten and overturn that whole social norm. So for these various reasons, uh, the Roman emperor's all in their turn, as you saw in the video, one by one um, persecuted the Christians in their time. And so this meant that the Christians had to be very careful. Um, Have you ever seen that fish symbol? Like on bumper stickers or, you know, in various places representing that someone is a Christian? You know where that comes from? It actually comes from this time in the first uh, early 100 um, to 300 AD. What happened was um, if... You know, you're a Christian, you're walking along and you meet somebody on the road. You might kind of wonder, I wonder if they're Christian. And what you would do is you maybe just very subtly with your toe kind of draw this arc on the ground. right? And if no one knows any better, they might just think you're kind of just, you know, pushing around dirt with your feet. But if they were a Christian, they would then complete the arc um, and make this fish. And it was a symbol that, yes, I'm a Christian too. And then they would be able to um, embrace and encourage one another. And the reason why um, they would use a symbol of a fish, what do you think? What do you think were, were some of the reasons that uh, they used the symbol of a fish? Any ideas out there? Why not a lamb? Harder to draw. <laughs> Yep. Jesus said, I'm going to make you fisher of men. So um, this idea of discipleship and sharing about Jesus and people learning about it, there is a symbolism of fishing. Anything else? Some of the were yeah, some of the disciples were fishermen. So maybe there was some association. And there's a lot of stories about Jesus um, and the miracles, like multiplying the fish or helping them catch the fish. Right? Anything else? The Greek um, letter alpha, which is like our letter A, actually looks like this. Um, and Jesus and I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So there's another potential reason. But here is the um, kind of the ultimates. Um, the Greek word for fish is ichthys. Sounds kind of fishy. And basically the, um, the letters that stand for that Greek word ichthys, it's an acrostic for Jesus Christ, son of God. Um, so I won't go through all the Greek pronunciations, but yeah, it was a, it was a way, it was a shortened version of saying Jesus Christ, son of God happened to spell out fish. Um, and so for many reasons, it was a very convenient way for the Christians to kind of communicate secretly with each other that they were Christian and, um, they would have these secret meetings and what they would do is put quickly put a fish symbol over the door so that Christians looking for this house, it's not like they had GPS systems and, you know, could figure out where to meet. And so they would just hear, okay, you got to go in this neighborhood, et cetera. And then when they get there, they would look for that fish symbol over the house, um, or on the ground or somewhere nearby to let them know, this is it, you've arrived. Cause if you rock on the wrong door, you're in trouble. Right. Um, and so they would, they would meet secretly, um, in homes, um, they would meet secretly um, wherever they could find that space, maybe in the mountains, sometimes in the caves. Um, and they would come together, and what would they do? What was worship like for the early Christians? And we have a little bit of an idea from various historic um, uh, writings that have been left to us Um by Christians and Jews as well as non-Christians observing the Christians and saying things like they just weird singing and you know they would describe it in their own terms and so we have a little bit of an idea. But what's interesting is that a lot of times they would come together, and you have to remember that they did not have the Bible as we have it today. The Bible was being written during their time, literally, and so um, they would wait for someone to bring them a story. Have you guys ever heard of the story keepers? Anyone? No? It's an animated cartoon series um, that I used to watch as a child. And I must confess, recently discovered on YouTube and watched again. Um, and it's about this... Um, well, it's about these kids who, after Emperor Nero burned down a lot of the Christian homes and, and the and the kids became orphans, um, it's a story, a made-up story, about a baker named Ben and his wife, Helena, who adopt these children. And basically they Ben is one of the leaders Christian leaders, and he organizes these secret meetings and the kids jobs was to make sure that the storyteller would make it safely or that the scroll that had the story would make it safely to that meeting place and so these animated cartoons you know show the antics and the adventures of these young kids you know sometimes they would like slide down down the um the, uh, the aqueducts, you know, and escape the Roman soldiers and make it just in time. And, um, you know, it's it's fun to watch, but it really illustrates um, the danger of, of living in those times and how precious those stories would be then, because people would literally risk their lives to relay these scrolls that had just a few stories about Jesus, maybe just one parable. And it would be basically written down um, and then somebody would relay them and if you're really lucky you would get Peter himself or James himself or you know the actual eyewitness or you would get the scroll that had the story written and then it would get passed out passed around and eventually would come to that meeting place and sometimes they would have to wait for hours if that person had been detained if that person you know got got caught um, and they would just pray and hope and wait for that story. And when that story would come and somebody would read it out loud and, you know, maybe there would be 20, 30, 40 people packed into that place and everyone listening so intently to that story that was so precious to them. And that's why this series are called The Story Keepers, because that's what they were, these early Christians. They were story keepers. And the reason why we have the Bible here today is because of their faithfulness in preserving those stories and writing down those stories and making sure that those stories uh, were shared even at the risk of death. And, you know, when you think about the lengths that these individuals went through and you saw how terrible it could be if you were caught, um, and in the immense, it's not just death but torture and, you know, just a, a terrible consequence for being a Christian, for having a faith. And it begs the question, well, why? Why would they risk their lives for such a story? Why would they go through all that trouble? um, And, you know, in that time, you're basically denouncing the privileges that you had as a Roman citizen to be a Christian and possibly go underground and not see the sun for years. Why would you go through all that? For the next few months, Roy and I uh, will be doing a series on these Christians who defined the worldwide movement that is the Christian Church today, um, and we'll be looking at these early stories and these early Christians who um, took the stories to the rest of the world. And I hope that it begins to answer some of our questions of how did Christianity start? You know, how how has it evolved, and who are we now, um, and how has that story been preserved? or polluted, or um, perhaps transformed um, over time. And we're going to find some of those uh, answers and some of the stories in the book of Acts. And I want to invite you to turn there now. It's also going to be up on the screen for those of you um, who don't have a Bible. It's The story is found in Acts chapter 1. Now, the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. And Luke... Um, you might recognize that name because that's actually one of the gospel writers. So he actually wrote the book of Luke as well as the book of Acts. And so, but the book of Acts actually picks up where Luke left off. Um, so if you ever have a free afternoon, read Luke and Acts together and you'll see kind of a continuous story. And Luke was a physician who, um, he was a doctor, but he also um, was a Christian and he would accompany Paul. On his missionary journeys, which I'm sure was very handy to have when you're a missionary to have a doctor come along with you, um, and so he, not only did he was he there for some of the stories. So as you read the Book of Acts, sometimes it'll say he da 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 da, and then sometimes it'll say we, you know da 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 da, because he was there. Um, and he was also um, close to Peter, and so he would hear first-hand accounts from Peter of jesus and you know disciples and all the parables and teachings and so luke um being an educated man decided to write all this down so he wrote the book of luke the gospel of luke i should say telling the story of jesus and then he wrote the book of acts um so we're going to pick up in acts chapter one and we're going to read um from verses one to eleven but i'll stop once in a while It starts in verse 1. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Did you know that Jesus, after he resurrected, spent 40 days, Days with the disciples. We often think that he died, resurrected. Everyone's like, "Wow, he's alive!" And then, boom, he disappeared. You know, and we're all like, "Okay, he's gonna come back someday." But actually, he spent forty days with them after his resurrection. That's a long time. I, I think um, exchange closed for like three weeks or something. Felt like a long time, right? Since we've seen each other. Can you imagine forty days? Forty days. And you have to remember that, you know, they had just witnessed a very traumatic crucifixion. So they saw Jesus die and then they saw him resurrected and they continued to see him every day for 40 days. What would you have asked Jesus if he had been there? What would you have said? Would you have asked him to explain why he had to die? Or perhaps you would have asked him okay so what are you going to do now or maybe you would have asked you know you're really curious about what what heaven is like and maybe you would have asked him okay so tell me everything you know you know um or maybe you were more curious about your own life some of the disciples were asking jesus so what's going to happen to me and they were like and what's going to happen to him you know so i don't know what kind of questions would we ask jesus if if you could see him face to face for 40 days what were they doing for 40 days. Luke says that for 40 days, they were speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and that he gave them many infallible proofs. I like that. Not only did Jesus just say, look, I'm alive. That's good enough. He spent the 40 days truly teaching them, explaining them to them, uh, the scriptures. And if you look, go back to Luke chapter 24, the story had ended with Jesus kind of um meeting these two disciples who were going away from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus because they thought Jesus had died. And Jesus actually walks along the road with them. And he starts explaining to them how Jesus had to die and how um, the Messiah wasn't this Messiah that's going to set up an earthly kingdom, but somebody who is going to set up a kingdom in our hearts and who's going to ask us to have loyalty to God rather than the world. And so as Jesus is um, explaining all this, they don't recognize him. And it's not until he kind of breaks bread with them at the, at the house that their eyes are opened and they realize it's Jesus. And then, boom, he disappears from their sight. It's very dramatic. Um, and that's how the book of Luke had ended. And so it's appropriate that Acts begins the story once more by saying, look, Jesus spent the 40 days explaining to them. They had to unlearn all their expectations. They had to realize that what God wanted to achieve was not peace and harmony on earth so much as peace and harmony in our hearts so that no matter what happens around us, we're able to love and forgive and choose to worship God so that we can then have a world that serves God as king and is kind to one another. And that kind of kingdom isn't set up overnight. And so he spends 40 days explaining and making sure that his storytellers have the facts straight. And he provides proof. It says infallible proof. And he provided that proof from the Bible and from history, etc., so that they would be then equipped to be able to tell their story and share their eyewitness with others who would not be able to see Jesus. And, you know, sometimes I have wondered, you know, why didn't Jesus stay? Wouldn't it be a lot easier to believe in God if he were here, right? Right? doesn't have to be everywhere but at least in one place we can fly over and see him and then we can believe right but jesus had a plan for his disciples that they wouldn't just be you know traffic guides pointing people to where jesus was but they would actually be storytellers to be able to tell the experience that the, each one would have with jesus each story would be unique each story would be personal and each story would have something in it that would convict someone else that Jesus lives and that he is God and that he came and died and resurrected for us. And, you know, that task of being a storyteller is a lot harder than just being a signpost, right? The act of sharing makes us vulnerable in a way that perhaps we're, we're a bit afraid of. Um, and if you keep reading in Acts chapter 1, sorry, I forgot to... Pass that on. He continues to give them kind of um, more more advice and kind of uh, instructions. And he says, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards um, heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, Who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will so come again in like manner as you saw him go up. I can understand why the disciples are kind of in a daze as Jesus going up, because after he's gone, they're kind of wondering, okay, now what? Honestly, I'd be really afraid. It's a very challenging, daunting task to have to tell the story of Jesus when he's no longer with you. And to no longer be able to teach you. And all of a sudden you go from being a a disciple from someone who's learning to being somebody who is able to teach and to share with someone else. After the 40 days, uh, what happens is they then Jesus goes up to heaven. And then for 10 days, they go up to this upper room, 120 some of them, and they gather together and they pray. And Roy is going to be sharing more about this next week. But what happens at the end of that time is that this Holy Spirit that God, that Jesus had promised comes and gives them the courage and the wisdom and the power that they need to be able to go out and tell the story. But you know, you can have power, you can have courage, you can you can have all that. But if you don't have a story to share, it doesn't mean anything. I think the 40 days was really necessary for the 50 really. For these individuals, and it says men, women, you know, I'm sure there were children as well. For those individuals to be able to share something with power, they had to have a personal story about Jesus, with Jesus. Um, even if it was not, it was not firsthand, perhaps it was their sister who was healed by Jesus, and they were the ones at home that day waiting for their dad to come home, wondering will she come back healed, or perhaps it was one of the people who had just heard about the the bread and the fish being multiplied and they got to eat a little bit of the leftovers that somebody brought back. You know, you don't have to be there physically to believe in something. I've never been to Italy, but I believe that the Tower of Pisa is leaning. I don't have an iPhone 6, but I believe from the testimony of others that it's more powerful than the previous models. So some say, right? Sometimes, you know, we 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 say to ourselves, well, it's difficult for me to believe in Jesus because I haven't had supernatural sights in the sky. I haven't had a voice in my ear. But the question is, have you encountered Jesus through the testimonies of others? And why is it that we can read something in news and take it as fact, but we cannot Read about or hear about the countless stories of hundreds and thousands and millions and billions now of Christians who have experienced Jesus, who have handed down their first hand witnesses. But we doubt and we say, well, that's just their thing. I guess the challenge that I want us to think about, and we're going to have a chance to go into our discussion shortly, but the challenge that I want us to consider is one, Do we have a story to tell about Jesus? And if not, are we willing to learn the story of Jesus by talking to others who believe in him, by asking them, well, what is your story? Uh, Why is it that you believe? What has been your experience? And also looking at the stories that are in here. The Bible is just a compilation of the stories of individuals who have experienced God in various ways. And the challenge that I face and that we all face is that the story, uh, sometimes we expect one story for everyone, but I believe that God has a different story for every single person because we experience him in different ways. And so again, the question is, what is your story? And are you willing to share that story with others? Are you willing to be a story keeper to keep that story alive and share it despite the difficulties that you may face? And honestly, we don't face death. We don't face, face the type of persecution that the early Christians had to face. That doesn't mean that it's easier, but I'm just saying that um, we have a bit of time, don't we? We have a bit of leisure that they perhaps did not because we have it in front of us. We um, we have the liberty here in Australia of being able to freely study, to freely talk about religion, and to share and listen to each other's stories. And so I hope and pray that as we... Um, go into these new series on the book of Acts and on the various individuals who shaped Christianity. I hope and pray that their stories would inspire us to reflect upon and to prepare and to share our stories as well.
1: So the song of uh, response for this afternoon is called almighty. It's written by uh, Chris Tomlin who uh, recently came out with uh, with a new album. I think it's called uh, red and the cross or something like that um, on the uh, video it's basically uh, it's a pre-recorded um, video. I don't know if what I'm singing is actually going to match that because I didn't actually get a chance to sync it, but um, let's see how I go. you will know what the words are as I'm singing them. but um, yeah, I just um, the disciples, as they kind of went from Acts chapter one to the rest of the book, this was kind of their um, this was kind of like the message that they were uh, preaching. and so um, yeah, as you reflect, this is the song of response for today. My eyes and I try
0: Prayer, Father God. Um, perhaps some of us have never heard your story before. I pray that you would give us the opportunity to learn more. And Father, for some of us, we have a story, but we haven't really had the courage to share. And I pray that you would inspire us and that you would um, open our eyes to see with whom we can share our story. And Father, I pray that um, as we gain a deeper experience with you that your Holy Spirit would give us the power to be your witnesses, to be your storytellers, so that we can help transform this city. For, Father God, with 120 people, you started a movement that changed the world. And I pray that, Father, you would be able to um, enable you to change us so that we can help um, change this city, to challenge this city, to create a place that can truly um, honor your values and promote the peace that you have to provide. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.